Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 28, President Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis is not a man easy to discuss in American history, and for good or maybe very bad reasons. Depending on when and where you lived, he was for many years considered to be either something of a devil in human skin, or a saintly figure who supposedly stood up to northern aggression. Neither of these is entirely accurate. For this reason alone, I must state up front that while Jefferson Davis failed in the end to become the man I believe he ought to have been, he was by no means alone in that failing within the Confederacy. He may deserve hatred, yet we should learn from his mistakes instead rather than curse him. He is dead and buried now. What we should definitely not do is applaud him or view him as a hero, as generations of Lost Cause historians tried. Jefferson Davis did terrible things, and they had consequences far worse than anyone imagined. Like most Confederate leaders, his loyalty to slavery far exceeded his loyalty to country or even common decency. Indeed, he will eventually go so far as to defend slavery even from those in the Confederacy who would end it in exchange for a separate nation. In one way or another, he will refuse peace a hundred times. And yet, Jefferson Davis, unlike so many infamous 20th century tyrants, had no great personal vices or hatreds, at least until the bitterness of the Civil War ruined him. He had no great burning need to slaughter and destroy, and in another time or place likely could have become an American champion. He was capable of generosity and real human kindness as well as a sternness that broke no compromise. Had he sided with the Union, he might very well today be remembered as a great hero. But let us put aside discussions of what he was in favor of who he was. Jefferson Davis was born in the summer of 1808, making him less than a year older than his eventual opponent, Abraham Lincoln. Like Lincoln, he was born in Kentucky, and by coincidence, just a hundred miles or so from Lincoln's birthplace, as the crow flies. His father, Samuel Davis, owned substantially more resources than the Lincolns and was quite a bit older. Jefferson was the baby of the family. His parents even gave him the middle name Finnis to show they intended him to be their last child. The family then moved several times, but settled in Mississippi where the elder Davis was able to form a profitable plantation. Here Samuel Davis spent his last years and made a considerable impact on Jefferson's character. We know relatively little about Samuel Davis, but he valued education and apparently matched Jefferson's later sternness with his own will. Yet he also brought a sense of humor or cleverness along with it. When Samuel Davis learned that his youngest son had been shirking classes, he gave Jefferson a simple choice, to work with his head or his hands. He then sent his son off to work the fields alongside the slaves. This simple yet effective lesson worked very well, and Jefferson Davis would prove a diligent and intelligent student for the rest of his life. If there was a clear fault, however, it's that Jefferson Davis never entirely looked at those slaves and could never conceive of them as equal fellows. He couldn't stand to labor in the fields for more than one day, but for them it was their entire life. When Samuel passed away in 1824, Jefferson's older brother Joseph took charge of the boy's education and development. In a kind of reverse to the Lincoln family story, Joseph Davis acted like the family we all might desire, carefully nurturing and helping his younger sibling grow. And grow Jefferson Davis did, 
He studied at several schools in Kentucky and Mississippi, and demonstrated a clear capacity for learning perhaps beyond his years. As with many Southern elites, he had no particular fear of the Catholic Church, and one of the schools he, which he studied was attached to a religious order. Another school of his, Transylvania University, lacks the national fame of Yale or Harvard, but punches far above its weight in terms of historical importance. It is the oldest American university west of the Appalachians, and the list of alumni includes a great roster of Civil War generals and frontier statesmen. Joseph's greatest gift to the young Jefferson, however, was arranging for the youngest Davis to attend West Point. We've mentioned the school a few times, and we'll do so again, but this is a good opportunity to explain a little bit about it. West Point had originally been a military fortification in the Revolutionary War. In fact, that same location saw Benedict Arnold's attempted treason and flight to the British. Years after, President Thomas Jefferson signed the legislation founding a school in 1802, although it only became nationally important some years later. In the aftermath of the War of 1812, the United States realized it needed to modernize its military structure and officer corps. For an enhanced curriculum, they turned West Point into one of the nation's leading higher education institutions. Its program of mathematics and engineering were particularly important, as few such skills existed within the United States. Most university-level education systems at the time focused strongly or entirely on the law, theology, or liberal arts. Now, Jefferson Davis himself more or less succeeded at West Point, but managed a certain amount of troublemaking at the time. Discipline at West Point, morally tight in the military manner, seemed a hair too tight for Davis. He spent some time drinking at the famous, or sometimes infamous, off-base tavern owned by one Benny Haven. On one occasion, he managed to seriously injure himself fleeing the bar just before an officer arrived to catch him. Davis further participated in the serious but also hilarious eggnog riot of 1826, and nearly wound up expelled for his mischief. Nonetheless, young Jeff Davis managed to graduate, alongside some of the most noteworthy generals of the Mexican-American War and a few Civil War officers. His own class was not well represented in the Civil War later on, partly because many officers from those classes died while stationed on frontier duty, or simply left the service after so many years. Davis and his classmates, after all, were no longer young men by the time the war began. Still, within a couple years of Davis's class of 1828, men like Albert Sidney Johnston, Leonidas Polk, Joe Johnston, and Robert E. Lee all graduated. Most other Confederate commanders of note also studied at West Point a decade later, and were thus younger and lower-ranked officers in the Mexican-American War. Davis's early military career proved a little bit more exciting than most, although given the dull standards of the pre-war military, that doesn't say much. There would be significant future consequences due to his commanding officer, however. He happened to be... Zachary Taylor. Davis very quickly came to idolize Taylor, and remained ever loyal to the man in his heart. He also got to know Taylor's daughter, Sarah Noxie Taylor, and the pair quickly fell in love. However, officers of the day received scant compensation, partly because their service was itself payment for their education, and the two faced the possibility of years of hard living on frontier forts. Zachary Taylor, though perhaps not critical of Davis himself, had no desire to see his daughter live alongside him in the rough conditions available. And the frontier itself remained untamed. Abraham Lincoln and Davis had their second near miss, as Davis played a small part in the Black Hawk War. 
Supposedly, Black Hawk actually surrendered to Davis in person in 1832, then acting on behalf of General Taylor, and Davis made sure to offer the man every courtesy and kept away the nosy and curious from this most unusual guest. Soon enough, however, Davis found himself ready to leave federal service, which was not uncommon for officers at the time. He genuinely seemed to enjoy military life, but as often happens, happenstance forces us to reconsider our best-laid plans. He eloped with young Miss Taylor, much to Zachary Taylor's extreme displeasure, and settled on land next to his brother's plantation at Davis Bend in Mississippi. His new home, dubbed Briarfield, proved to be plentiful and profitable after good hard work clearing it, done more or less entirely by slaves, of course. We should take a moment to discuss Davis's relationship with his slaves. Now, in no way can we condone slavery, but honesty demands that we acknowledge Jefferson Davis had a reputation of being unusually generous, honest, and kind to his slaves. In a time when more than a few masters raped, tortured, or cruelly overworked their bondsmen, Davis earned a name completely to the contrary. His life also contains not even a trace of scandal, and he appears to have given his slaves a much better material and social existence than other slave owners. Again, this does not excuse owning people, but we should also compare Davis against the societal norm here. Yet again, Davis also never seems to have grasped that no matter how well he treated his slaves, they remained slaves, and that quite a few other masters did not live up to his kind of self-discipline. This is also a good moment to discuss Davis's faults, as he's beginning to grow past the youthful stage we all go through. For all that Davis possessed remarkable intelligence, a drive that anyone might envy, and the ability to forge tight bonds with his fellows, he also had a deeply stubborn streak. He embodied the same sternness his father possessed, and similarly did not back down from any challenge, no matter how trivial or even imagined, easily. If Davis believed something, well, he had a habit of not seeing the contrary case, no matter how the evidence lay. He assumed his righteousness was as obvious as his self-righteousness was unyielding. Quite naturally, people bounced off Davis as much as they often found him compelling. He just had one of those personalities that people find infuriating and admirable at the same time. We will both discuss and see firsthand some of the consequences of that stiff neck. This flaw only grew stronger when tragedy struck in 1835. Davis, though slowly bringing around Zachary Taylor with his gentle wife's love for both husband and father, became sick with yellow fever on a visit to his family. This disease, a perennial scourge of the Mississippi region, weakened him so greatly that he hung on the knife's edge between life and death for days. Yet he recovered. Sarah Noxie Taylor the warm light of her husband's heart, did not. To say that Jefferson Davis felt devastated would be the understatement of the century. Although not yet wealthy, Davis had enough resources to travel and retreat from the world a bit just to get away, which he did. He never seems to have entirely regained his verve for life, and a certain grimness always hung around him thereafter. Zachary Taylor, however, did not blame Davis, and if anything, completely reconciled with the young man afterwards. And after a couple of years of travel and broadening his horizons, Jefferson Davis did recover his energy at least. He returned home, eventually married Varina Howell, and by all accounts remained as faithful and loving to her as to Sarah Noxie Taylor to the end of his days. The two would go on to produce six children. 
Now, among other things in this time, he cleared and expanded his plantation before studying the law for self-education. He got involved with state politics in 1840, and followed that up when he became a representative to Congress in 1845. Jefferson Davis spent little time there, however, owing to the onset of hostilities with Mexico. Jefferson Davis, always proud of his military service and eager for the chance of glory once more, raised a volunteer regiment and marched off to war under the command of his former father-in-law, Zachary Taylor. Davis performed well by all accounts and even became a minor war hero at the hard-fought Battle of Buena Vista, where he remained cool under fire and repelled attack after attack. This set the stage for his further political rise. Already a young gentleman on the make, he now had a real soldierly reputation with which to polish the old medals. Jeff Davis's big break came when he received an appointment to fill out a vacant senatorial term in Mississippi. Yet this is also when he became deeply involved with the pro-slavery Southern Democrats, as we discovered. Although flirting with radicalism years before it became quote-unquote normal, after stepping back, he regained his influence and even became one of the more respected statesmen of the Senate. After John C. Calhoun's death in 1850, Davis turned into a kind of standard bearer for the Southern Democrats. With his thin, serious face, he appeared almost a Roman statue brought to life, and he practically embodied the party's self-identity. Still, it seems to have been a modest surprise when President Pierce asked Davis to become Secretary of War. Davis accepted, which means that in fact, yes, the arch-nemesis of the United States spent years managing its military. Jefferson Davis, in fact, proved an adept leader with inevitably a few quirks. Among other achievements, he modernized military arms. He pushed forward the widespread adoption of the rifled musket, and in particular the 58 caliber version. This infamously destructive weapon would become the standard rifle of both armies during the Civil War. During his tenure, the size of the army doubled due to the greatly increased demands of the much-enlarged western frontier. Of course, this only meant adding a few thousand soldiers, for the pre-war army remained tiny by European standards. Still, Davis ran his office efficiently and honestly. As mentioned, however, he had his eccentricities and a humorless self-seriousness that often infuriated those he dealt with. When Davis proposed the use of camels in the desert southwest, he encountered more than a little pushback and ridicule. Insisting on his way, he went to great lengths to purchase some from the Middle East, including hiring drovers to corral them. Although camels do have a few advantages, they did not prove particularly useful. To Davis, however, what mattered was that they proved his point. The theory held sound, regardless of the long-term practical impact. And unfortunately, the man was fast developing a habit of refusing to ever acknowledge a fault. Jefferson Davis also supported other projects outside his direct responsibility in office, although many of them certainly did have some relationship to his office as Secretary of War. Most notable among these was the Gadsden Purchase. Today, this is more of a minor footnote in American history, a stretch of land forming the southern angle of Arizona. At the time, however, it was thought to help form a flatter, more convenient pathway for a transcontinental railroad. Davis, who remained as dogmatically inflexible on this matter as anything else, helped drag out the construction of any alternative railroad by trying to prevent other routes. After his term in office, Davis returned to the Senate for the Buchanan administration, where we can at least say he did not cause great harm to the nation. 
but he also proved unable and unwilling to stop the increasing fissure between the states. Although he personally had left behind the most radical side of secession, he remained deeply pro-slavery. Again, he never seems to have considered the inevitable problems of this, nor given the slightest consideration to the potential consequences. Davis lacked the ability to bargain or trade, seemingly, and these were so often necessary in the politics of any democracy, great or small. Far from making deals, even towards mutual ends, Davis, naively and arrogantly in one package, demanded others vote their conscience as he would inevitably vote his. In a man willing to listen and give decent hearing to any reasonable proposal, this might have been a virtue. In Davis it appeared as a fault, for he could never quite come to believe that he was ever in the wrong. Unfortunately, he also never seems to have been capable of thinking anyone he disliked was in the right regardless of the issue, and he disliked a great many people. Moreover, he had a bluntness that often approached outright antagonism. Unable to persuade, he instead blindly insisted on his point, which frankly offended other men of the same rank. Nonetheless, his ability and his status as a leading senator from the Deep South brought wide respect, if not love, and all through the 1850s he played a major part in Southern politics. He had one of the key voices in making any deal happen. This may give us a clue as to why he didn't then support secession immediately, although we can also say that he acted as one of the chief anti-anti-secessionists in Congress. Davis had much to lose by secession. Having grown past radical politics, perhaps he felt no need to establish himself as one of its primary leaders. During the Democratic Party convention in 1860, Massachusetts Democrat Benjamin Butler supported Jefferson C. Davis for president many, many times. Butler believed that Davis might keep the party together, and perhaps the nation as well. Butler was quickly disappointed, however. When Mississippi seceded from the Union, Jefferson Davis accepted the decision and resigned from the Senate, with a certain measure of regret, but also without rancor. He quietly traveled back to Briarfield to spend some time with the family. There, however, he received the shock of his life. Now, we are going to skip past much of the specifics of the formation of the Confederacy right now. These events are well worth examining, but that will have to become another episode entirely. While Davis had been in the process of departing Congress, a somewhat formal meeting of delegates from each of the seceding states spent its February trying to organize their would-be nation. Each of these states had agreed to meet in Montgomery, Alabama, and they sent some of their most noteworthy men, although not necessarily the best. The names include several future Confederate generals and cabinet members. Now, while South Carolina and Mississippi had led the way in breaking up the Union, it was actually the Georgia delegation who ended up with an outsized role in the overall process. Former Governor of Georgia Howell Cobb became president of the Provisional Congress, while Alexander Stevens more or less managed everything from behind the scenes. The process proved easier and harder than one might expect. In the specifics of what they adopted, the group eventually just up and copied virtually the entire U.S. Constitution, and followed that by then incorporating nearly all existing federal law. The changes involved first making slavery an explicit part of the constitutional system and protecting it, and second, changing the presidency to a single six-year term instead of a repeatable four-year term. They did grant that office a line-item veto, 
which doesn't appear to have ever been used. The other, and much more difficult, question lay in the fact that each state, or more specifically each leading figure, wanted to have a great impact on events. It was up to the cleverness of Alexander Stevens to somehow meld the disparate states and their respective egotists into a single confederacy with a powerful leader. This brought up the main issue that would cause some trouble, and that was the question of whom to select as this first president, this first leader. Everyone knew this choice would have an immense impact on their future. However, they lacked the time to hold an election and desired to have an executive to help immediately unify the country. So the new Confederate delegates decided to simply vote in a candidate. Going into this vote, the leading choice seemed at first to be one of the leading Georgia politicians, our old friend Robert Toombs. However, he had his own liabilities. Toombs appeared before the delegates in such a state that it convinced them that he could be counted on to drink himself into a stupor regularly. His support plummeted accordingly. The delegates, and probably Alexander Stevens specifically, realized that the best option was to find an outsider from their meeting, someone not at the convention. That would avoid many political problems in the short term, as well as the clash of pride and ego. In addition, everyone recognized that their states alone would quite possibly break up in short order if they didn't gain the allegiance of at least some part of the Upper South, most critically Virginia. They needed an authoritative figure, not clearly identified as a wide-eyed radical to do so. In part, then, Jefferson Davis became a compromise candidate precisely because he wasn't there and seemingly took no part in affairs. As far as anyone can determine, Davis hadn't campaigned for the office, not even in the usual political fashion of stealthily building support. Ironically, Davis appeared to be something for everyone, widely respected, but not closely tied to any one faction. In addition, delegates considered that his knowledge and talent for organization, especially in the military field, might serve the Confederacy better than almost any alternative candidate. Most Confederates believed that war would never happen. But having Davis in charge there couldn't hurt. He might even help prevent conflict. Besides, who else was more qualified? Thus it was that Jefferson Davis received a telegram quite out of the blue. Not knowing its contents, he scanned the missive with his wife nearby. According to Varna Davis, the new Confederate president turned ashen gray and appeared as though he had just learned of a death in the family. In retrospect, he might have found such news far more congenial. Nevertheless, the next day he boarded a steamer bound for the nearest rail connection at Vicksburg, and upon reaching Montgomery was sworn into office on February 22nd. He appears never to have considered declining the nomination. Had he been a man of imagination to match his willpower, he might have spared himself and the country much grief thereby. Instead, Jefferson Davis took that oath of office and he became the first, last, and only president of the Confederacy. In doing himself, he committed himself to the Confederacy as an entity, yet at almost the same moment he began to shape his opposition inside it. Davis lacked the gentle touch in politics, and wound up alienating quite a few powerful figures, including Toombs, Robert Barnwell Rett, and Alexander Stevens in turn. Yet he also stole a moment ahead of his rival to the north. At a time when days counted, he gained two crucial weeks to solidify his position and act before Abraham Lincoln took his oath of office. 
that is where we will leave off for today. Davis and Lincoln will soon begin dueling with the deadliest of games, and the stake is the American nation itself. This conflict would take all the peace of mind from both men. Within a few years, both would have been transformed by the war. Both men would lose children. Both would come face to face with the price of their decisions, good or bad. And thus we set the stage for our next episode, where we will see the inauguration of Abraham Lincoln and his desperate attempt to prevent disunion. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast, and I hope you'll join us next time.